We are continuing our look at, through the book of Acts, and we've got uh, three more, counting this morning, uh, kind of messages that focus on the model church. Um, and overall, we're going to be looking at 12 characteristics of the model church and seeing how that compares to uh, the church today. And I know it may seem like we're spending an inordinate amount of time in just these eight verses, uh, but I think it's, it's critical for all the reasons we've talked about uh, before to make sure that we as a church are really fulfilling uh, the mission. And this morning we're going to come to three, actually, three characteristics that all kind of go together, and I'll explain how in a moment, but uh, the overarching principle uh, that we see in the early church that we want to talk about today, from which the other two characteristics I'm going to mention uh, flow, is the issue of unity. Unity. There's something about unity that is both alluring and elusive. And a lot of people have a misunderstanding about unity. They think it means that um, we just agree to disagree. Uh, that's a false notion. I've talked about that uh, elsewhere. Uh, unity is actually something that uh, happens when we have something in common, when we're all part of uh, the same uh, team, uh, when we can accomplish something because of our underlying connection. And once you have unity, a lot of things will spring from that. Uh, and we're going to talk about some of those uh, this morning. But unity uh, is organic. Uh, it's not something that you have to say, okay, today we're going to be unified. You are unified or you aren't. And if you are, then things will flow uh, naturally. And there's a humorous story out of Africa that kind of illustrates the importance of unity. It's a story about a little tiny uh, pygmy who was standing over a rhinoceros, this enormous rhinoceros that he'd just killed. And it was quite a sight to behold, you know, a big, violent rhinoceros at the feet of a little tiny pygmy. Well, an American tourist happened upon the site and saw this dead rhinoceros and this little pygmy over it and looked at the pygmy and he looked at the rhinoceros. They looked back at the pygmy and he said, did you kill that? And the pygmy said, yeah, I killed it. Well, curious, the tourist said, well, how did you, a small pygmy, kill this rhinoceros? And the pygmy answered, with my club. Yep, I killed it with my club. And the American was still very perplexed. And he thought, he said to the pygmy, well, well how big is your club? And the pygmy said, oh, there's about a hundred of us in the club. <laughs> In other words, he was surrounded by friends who had the same goal, the same purpose, which was to kill this rhinoceros. Well, as we come to this message this morning, we're going to look at three more characteristics of the model church, and one of these is unity. And as I said, unity is not something you can manufacture or create or just decide on. Uh, that's called consensus. Unity is more of an effect than a cause. And unity flows naturally when all other elements of the New Testament church are in place. So let's uh, take a moment and be reminded of where the church fits into Christ's mission. So if you think of Christ's mission as everything inside the circle, which of course is to go into all the world and preach the gospel, that's our purpose 
here. That's the purpose of the present church age. It's to advance the gospel message, to train up believers to spiritual maturity, to make disciples. Within uh, the present age, there are lots of churches, right? So each church has its own vision. We've talked a lot about that, how the vision ought to emanate from the timeless truth of Christ's mission, but the visions will be different. So church A might have one vision, church B another vision, church C another vision. We've got a vision here and unique things that we can do to fulfill Christ's mission. But what you always want to guard against is making sure that your church never slips outside of the constraining influence, if you will, of Christ's mission, the control. Uh, and at Plum Creek Chapel, that's what we strive to do and have for 20 years. We believe the Bible is our standard. Uh, we want to make sure that we are teaching the whole counsel of God, that what we are teaching is in accordance with the truth of God's Word, and that we are doing what a New Testament church should be doing. So over 2,000 years, obviously a lot of the, the, uh, function, the, the, the functional way that we do things has changed. You know, we have different settings, we have different facilities, we have technology, we even have written Bibles with leather bindings, we have hymn books and choruses and music, musical instruments, all of those types of things. Uh, but the core mission of any church transcends the centuries and, and should be the same as it was in the first century. So as we're preaching through the book of Acts, we kind of stalled out here in Acts chapter 2 after the Holy Spirit came and uh, the birth of the church occurred, and the first church there in Jerusalem was founded, and we see Luke, the great historian of the inspiration of Spirit, giving us a, a glimpse at what that church looked like. And so we've just been kind of walking through that and sort of making some comparisons. So we've gotten through seven uh, characteristics so far. Uh, baptism, we talked about that, that baptism, water baptism, that is, is an outward expression of an inward experience. It's an important first step. It's not something that will save you or get you into or keep you out of heaven. It's just part of uh, an uh, ordinance that the Bible commands us to do in this present age as an illustration of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and as a way of signaling to others that we're a part of the family of God. Not that that makes us part of the family of God, but it's just an announcement, as it were. Uh, we talked a lot about community and how important it is to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those uh, who rejoice. And that is going to come up again as we talk about uh, unity in a moment. We talked about doctrine, how from the very beginning, right out of the chute, it was absolutely critical to the local church that they follow the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching, of course, are now... Uh, given for us in sum and in total in God's Word, the written revelation of God. And uh, we talked about fellowship and uh, the fellowship meal, the Lord's Supper, again, as another ordinance. And we talked about how important it is to have that camaraderie. And, and, and we just experienced that here recently when we had our Come Together Fellowship. Uh, was that last week? Wow, it's been a long week. Uh, we just got in from Nebraska last night. I took a quick trip up there to meet with some other uh, pastors. Great time. But, uh, yeah, it seems like that was a while ago. But that was a great time. If you missed it, uh, boy, you missed a great time of, uh, of fun and games and fellowship. And, of course, prayer. We've talked about that uh, and how vital that is. That's something that, again, transcends 2,000 years of church history. It's not like we get to the point 
in church history where we say, oh, we don't need to pray anymore. We need to pray more now than we did ever in church history, frankly. And then last week we looked at the fear of God and reverence and this recognition of who God is. So I want to just read, just because it's been a little while since we read these eight verses, just for some context, the primary focal passage before we get to uh, the next one, which is unity. So beginning in Luke chapter 2 and verse 40, we read, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So the he there is Peter. Peter, as you know, uh, stood up in Jerusalem uh, on the day of Pentecost and gave that incredible sermon in which he explained that Jesus Christ, whom the Jews crucified, is in fact uh, the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of the world. And uh, there was a great response favorably to his message. Not everyone, but many were saved, 3,000 souls. And Luke is just telling us, kind of in transitioning to his description of the first church, that Peter continued to testify and exhort them and encourage them to be saved. Verse 41, Then those who gladly received the word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So the next one that we come to as we read through that description is this idea of unity. Unity. You see it there in verse 46 where he says, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Now that phrase with one accord in our English Bibles is actually just one word in Greek. It's a really interesting word. It's only used 12 times in the New Testament. And would you believe 11 of them are right here in the book of Acts. This was a vital component to the early church. Again, not something that they had to muster up, but just a description that the early church was marked by unity. (laughs) They uh, were with one accord. Uh, The only other place it's used in the New Testament is by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans when he says, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind, that phrase with one mind is the same word that's translated with one accord in Acts. With one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you have to wonder, Paul wrote Romans in 56, 57 AD in the winter time, so 33 years, let's see, 23 years after the church was founded in Jerusalem. So you have to wonder if Paul brings it up in his exhortation here in his epistle if already just in the first two decades the church was beginning to struggle a little bit uh, with unity. Jesus Christ uh, talks about this unity on the very night that he was betrayed. He prayed for the early church believers and also for us by the way. Isn't it amazing to think that the Lord Jesus the Son of God prays for all believers Uh, and we see this in John 17 when he says I do not pray for these alone but for also for all who will believe through me, uh, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. 
Now don't miss this. Jesus here actually connects the effectiveness of the church in this present age in terms of its ability to draw people to the Lord with our ability to maintain unity, to reflect the unity of the Godhead. Uh, I, I was telling the, the 9 o'clock uh, crowd that I got a call yesterday uh, from someone who wanted to berate me, literally, because I teach that uh, Jesus is God, and that God eternally exists in three persons, the doctrine of the Trinity. This person rejected the doctrine of the Trinity and did not believe Jesus was God, and just literally was yelling at me on the phone. I could hardly get a word in edgewise, but not only does the Bible teach plainly that 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 God is three in one. It's one of those uh, biblical antinomies that he is both three but one. I mean, how can that be? Well, because the Bible tells us that. But there's a unity there that is really hard for us to understand. But Jesus here points to that as a model for us today. And to the extent that the church is functioning in a unified manner, we're never more like Christ, who said, I and my Father are one. In that famous passage in Philippians 2, uh, Paul put it this way. He said to the Philippians, Fulfill my joy being like-minded. Different word, but same idea. Having the same love being of one accord. Again, a different word. And of one mind. He's just using different synonyms to talk about this idea of unity. So Satan, of course, is trying to take over the world. He's the god of this age, the prince, the power of the air. The whole world, John tells us, is under the sway of the wicked one. He's also the author of confusion. And so over 2,000 years, he's doing anything and everything he can to break up the church, to distract the church, to make the church about individualism and meeting everyone's individual needs rather than the common bond of our identity in Christ and the common bond of uh, the Holy Spirit, the second person of the Trinity. I don't know if you've ever been to a piano concert with multiple pianos. I have, uh, and I've also seen some on TV or on, on the Internet. But it's really something to behold and hear, even if you just have two grand pianos. I remember once when I was a kid at our church, I grew up in high school in a, a large uh, Baptist church, and we often hosted big-name uh, big uh, Christian artists and one, and we also had quite an orchestra and, and, and talented musician, uh, musician's team. Of course, they can't hold a candle to Plum Creeks. Uh, and that church had 2,000 people in it, but uh, that's another story. Uh, uh, and I remember one time the church had Dino, who's a Christian pianist. I'm not even sure if he's still around, but had him in. And one of the ladies in our church was also a concert pianist. So they put two grand pianos on the stage, and, 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 and Dino and this gal played together. And uh, it's just really something to behold, even just two grand pianos playing together. It's amazing. But the more you have, the more majestic it becomes. And if you've ever heard or seen a video of, you know, they say 100 pianos all playing together, it's unbelievable. But all of the pianos are all tuned to the same tuning fork, which means they're all inherently tuned to one another. In other words, for there to be unity... There's got to be something out there that everybody is tuned to, right? So I don't, I'm not a musician, but I assume when you guys are tuning up your instruments, you don't like tune the first guitar and then use that guitar to tune the second guitar and then that guitar to tune the next one, or violin or cello or whatever we have. I, don't, I can't even name half of these instruments up here. Uh, 
But that seems like that could lead to all kinds of problems, right? You all go back to the same original tuner, right? It'd be like telling secrets, and by the time it gets to the end, it's a different story. Yeah, it's like the the telephone game, right? Where you know you tell you whisper something, and by the time it gets to the end, it's completely different. Well, for Christians, that tuning fork is the Word of God. Uh, the only way to be unified is for everybody to focus on going where the Bible tells us to go. And that's why we've spent so much time reminding you that Christ's mission is still in force today. It's still the timeless truth. We've got to use the Bible as our uh, grid. Everyone has to have the same perspective that God's Word teaches. And that's why, you know, I know we live in an inclusive age and an age when everybody says, can't we all just get along and we have to agree to disagree. Of course, I've uh, been saying for years we need more people willing to disagree to agree. There's really too much agreement going on. We need Christians willing to stand up and disagree to agree. But, um, you know, you just that does not comport with the biblical doctrine of unity, right, of unity. So, you know, I'm a football fan. I think there's a football game later today. I'm not, I can't remember, but... Uh, if a football team is unified, it doesn't mean that everyone's playing the same position, right? It does mean that everyone's going toward the same goal line. There's an old story about Wrong Way Regal, uh, a famous uh, football player who, I, I can't remember if he recovered a fumble or an interception or somebody, ran the wrong way the whole length of the field. And the whole time his teammates were chasing him saying, turn around, turn around, you're going the wrong way. Well, that, that's, that's a problem if you're not all going toward the same uh, goal line. Uh, but it doesn't mean that everyone's playing the same position. If an orchestra is harmonious, it's not because they're all playing the same instrument, it's because they're all playing the same piece. If a choir is singing in great harmony, it's not because they're all singing the same parts, it's because they're all adding their part to the same song. See, it's the goal that produces unity. Unity is not sameness. Unity has to do with the same purpose. And as Christians, our purpose is to exalt Christ, to serve Him, to live for Him, to bring light to a lost world. That's what uh, the early church did. So unity. Now, once you understand unity, then flowing from unity comes the next one, and that's benevolence. Benevolence, generosity, caring uh, for one another. Notice we read, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now in this apostate, this age of the apostate church and more and more so-called theologians who have no idea what the Bible teaches and long ago rejected the Bible, I've heard liberal apostate theologians appeal to this verse to say that the early church was just a bunch of communists and that communism is really what the Bible teaches. Is that what this is saying here? Not at all. These early believers had frequent contact with each other, and in the case of the church uh, there in Jerusalem, communal living was voluntary, and it was limited to that area. Uh, it was not forced socialism or forced communism. No other New Testament church practiced communal living as far as the historical and biblical record is concerned. The New Testament nowhere commands us to have communal living. And Acts here, and this is, gets into our study on Wednesday nights of how to read and understand the Bible, is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's just telling us what they did. Uh, but it was a factor there in the Jerusalem church because there were already tensions between 
the Jews and the Romans and now the Christians who were turning the world upside down, as we're going to find out later in the book of Acts, and were upsetting the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and, and eventually Nero made Christians the scapegoat. Uh, and so in their day, and it was, it was necessary to be more careful and to have this type of uh, arrangement. It was a factor of the context and setting in which they lived. But it was really more of a manifestation of an underlying attitude and heart, and that was one of uh, benevolence. In Acts chapter 4, we see the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was, was his own, but they had all things in common. This was after the church had spread a few months later. Remember, you go right into Luke's account in Acts chapter 5, of Ananias and Sapphira, who said, well, okay, we'll get in on this. We'll sell our property and contribute to the good of the common, uh, of all. But they lied about it. They passed it off as if they had given one thing, but really they kept some of it back. Um, and also Barnabas, at the end of chapter 4, comes on the scene as a walk-on, and he's just mentioned as someone who sold some property and gave it to the church because they all needed to stick together. They had all things in common. So communal living was an outgrowth of the principle of benevolence. That principle hasn't changed, benevolence. Uh, the church needs to adopt the attitude of we're here for you. Um, you know, we, we, there ought to be some wisdom and uh, you ought to be distributing to those in need uh, judiciously, not just capriciously. Uh, I'm so proud of a Plum Creek Chapel who has a long history of being incredibly generous. And, you know, like many churches, we get inquiries pretty regularly from people needing help. And we seek from a pure heart to try to help whoever we can. But, you know, if a guy shows up on our front porch with a crack pipe in one hand and a joint in the other and says, can I have $20? That's going to raise a red flag. Of course, now they can just get their crack pipes from the president. But anyway, that's another, that's another story. What a brilliant idea that is, right? Um, so uh, we want to be wise. So how you implement the principle of benevolence is one thing. But the heart, the attitude, the timeless principle of the church saying, we're here for you, that's critical. And by the way, if the church over 2,000 years had consistently done its job, we wouldn't need government handouts. You know, government is not about you know, helping the needy. According to the Bible, government, which was instituted by God after Noah, is simply here to defend us and bless, evil, bless good and punish evil. Never intended to be caring for our needs. That's the church's job, right? Uh, but sadly, after 2,000 years, the church, I think, has missed uh, the boat on this. Um, I was talking to our pastor friend down in Colorado Springs who Plum Creek Chapel supports, Freedom Church, Scott Max, and I think he's preached here recently. And they do a monthly food pantry. And uh, he does that with great uh, wisdom and accountability. He doesn't just, you know, let anything go. In fact, he was telling me at one point, they, have, it's all, they open it all up in the parking lot and people drive through and... And he goes car to car and prays with the people and talk, you know, sees if they have any spiritual needs. But he said one time a bunch of Jehovah's Witnesses showed up and were going car to car and 
and on their parking lot and on the church parking lot and, and handing out their literature and stuff and he had to confront them and, and uh, they didn't appreciate that too much and they said well can't we we're just you know giving out our stuff he said great well can I come to your Jehovah's Witness church at your next meeting and stand up and start telling all your people the truth well they said no I don't think that'd be a good idea he said well then get off our property so um, you know you do have to have some regulating principles and some wisdom about how you how you do it but the heart uh, needs to needs to be there many years later at the close of the first century in the mid 90s the apostle John who if you, as we're going to get to in our journey through Acts, was very instrumental in the early days, Peter and John, of the church. Sixty years later, he writes, uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit, and reminds believers of the importance of benevolence. He says, Whoever has this world's goods, and sees his brother in need, and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now, he's not accusing a, a, a non-benevolent person of not being a Christian. So you, your, your identity in Christ never changes. Once you've trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone, you're born again, nothing can change that. But there are times when the love of God abides in you and exudes from you, and there are times when it doesn't. When you're walking in the flesh, and selfishness is one of the fruits of the flesh, by the way, according to Galatians 5, when you're not uh, walking in the Spirit, when you're out of fellowship with God, you're not reflecting the love of God. Right? That's what he's talking about there. That word abide means to remain close to, to have this connection to. So the underlying principle behind a a benevolence is not communal living. God's word never condones communism or socialism. The love of God is most closely manifested when we give selfishly, selflessly rather, uh, to others. Um, And I think that's hard uh, for uh, some uh, people to do today because maybe you've been burned. We've been burned. Uh, We've experienced it both personally and in a church setting where we've tried to help people and they had ulterior motives. But, you know, I'd rather be burned every now and then by a disingenuous person than actually turn a blind eye and deaf ear to someone who really needs help. Wouldn't you? you know, so I think we need to be balanced in that. But I love this uh, story of the young, eager preacher who got his first assignment at a, a small country church. And after about a year, he was being well-received, he was well-loved, he had a great rapport with his congregation, so he decided to preach a sermon on giving and challenges people to give. So he said, now church, you know we've got somewhere to go, and so we need this church to walk. And the deacons lined up on the front row and said, amen, reverend, let the church walk, let her walk. Well, the preacher continued trying to build on this energy and momentum. And he said, we, we've got to start moving. And the deacon said, let her walk, let her walk. And the preacher saw that he had his deacons with him. And so he said, and then after we've walked for a little while, church, we've got to run. We've got to run. And the, the deacons exclaimed, yes, sir, let the church run, let her run. And he went on preaching and getting the congregation and the deacons more and more excited as he continued. And he said, then after we've run for a while, church, it's time for the church to fly. We've got to fly. And the deacon's standing up. Yes, Reverend, we've got to fly. Let her fly. And then the preacher said, And well, now you know it's going to take money to make the church fly. And there was an awkward silence. And the deacons in unison exclaimed, Let the church crawl, Reverend. Let her crawl. 
benevolence. So, and then the last one that I think also flows out of unity here is this idea of joy, of joy. Uh, there's a difference between joy and pleasure. I hope you know that. Uh, the early church didn't have as nearly as many distractions as what we have today. I mean, we can see that. Um, and they didn't really have a, a category of pleasure, at least not the way we do. I mean, it was a rare indulgence when they experienced something that was pleasurable. To them, joy was their, their uh, pleasure. You know, today, we have confused those two. We, we take pleasure and we say, oh, this brings me pleasure, so I must be happy. Blessed is the biblical term, or joyful, right? But that's not at all the biblical concept of joy. I read this uh, true story. I don't know geographically where it was, but uh, it was really interesting to me. The king of a particular country would, was often on the road traveling throughout his territory, and a man living near the palace uh, remarked to a friend, well, it looks like the king's home tonight. And his friend said, well, how do you know? And the man pointed up toward the royal house and said, well, because when the king is home, his castle is all lit up. And someone has said, joy is the flag that flies over our castle, the castle of our hearts, when announcing the king is in residence today. You get up in the morning not feeling very joyful. Is the king not in residence? Have you forgotten that you're a child of the king? Have you forgotten your identity in Christ? You know, really... Uh, Joy was something that the early church, just literally days, weeks, 50 days after the resurrection, had, I think, a greater acquaintance with than, than we can even remotely imagine 2,000 years later. But Luke tells us, again, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. And what's interesting about this word gladness is it's not the usual word for joy or gladness. It's more of an extreme one. It's only used five times in the New Testament. And it's agaliasis. Uh, uh, I always get the accent wrong. Agaliasis. Agaliasis is the proper pronunciation. Um, and it's literally extreme joy. Uh, great joy. Uh, exultation. Like we might say overjoyed or extremely happy. It's only used five times in the New Testament, and it's, it's in Luke, both in his gospel and in his historical narrative of the book of Acts, remember Luke wrote both, it's a frequent theme related to our salvation. So, for example, you see this word here, agaliasis, agaliasis, that is a hard word to say, uh, in Luke chapter 1, when Elizabeth is talking about how John the Baptist in her womb leaped for great joy, uh, uh, leaped for exceeding joy. Uh, when she, he heard the sound of Mary's voice. Or we could think about the angels uh, meeting the shepherds out on the night Jesus was born. And they said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Now, in this case, it's the normal word for joy, kara, but it adds the word mega before it, meaning great joy, just another way to say the same uh, thing or to express the same thing. Uh, this was... Big news. This was the fulfillment of God's plan of the ages. It was a way to rescue mankind from the pits of sin and muck and mire of sin. 
And of course it was great joy. And if you go back to the text, so they had gladness, but also simplicity of heart. The word simplicity, also very unique. It's the only time it's ever used in the entire New Testament. And it has the idea of unworldliness. So what's going on here? Well, there was something unique about the early church. What was it? Their joy. When everything around them was falling apart, when Rome would later be burning, they still had this innate joy. You know why? Because the, the Savior that saved them from the penalty of sin, they knew Him. They walked with Him. They ate with Him. They talked with Him. He was real. Now, he's just as real today. And He's just as sure going to come back in bodily form the way He left. And we're going to sit under His kingdom someday as we talked about in the 9 o'clock hour. But somehow, time and distance has really changed our idea of, of what joy is. Someone has said, joy is the surest sign of the presence of God. When you wake up in the morning and you're just having a bad day, and it's just hard to, to get going, uh, we need to remember who we are in Christ, and that Jesus is our Savior, He's our King, He's with us. He's in us as he promised he would be. Uh, in his book, There's a Lot More to Health Than Not Being Sick, that's the title of it, Bruce Larson said this, Grimness is not a Christian virtue. There are no sad saints. If God really is the center of one's life and being, then joy is inevitable. If we have no joy, then we've missed the heart of the good news, and our bodies as well as our souls will suffer uh, the consequences. Someone else said, the Christian is the laughing cavalier of Christ. I like that. A gloomy Christian is a contradiction in terms. And I love this. Nothing in all religious history has done Christianity more harm than its connection with black clothes and long faces. Amen. When I die, don't wear black to my funeral. Um, I mean, I know it's a tradition. But uh, I'm not much of a traditionalist. You probably figured that out. I want people to rejoice at my celebration of life. That's why a lot of Christians, when they have a funeral, they call it a celebration of life, right? This isn't the time to mourn. I mean, hopefully there won't be people rejoicing over my death, although maybe there will be. I don't know. That's another story. But what I'm saying is, you know, yes, there's sadness when we lose a loved one, and we're, we're sad over the departure and missing them. But... That doesn't change our joy. Joy is intrinsic to who Christ is, and it's part of the Christian life. And early on, that's, that's what they were characterized by. Uh, today, we've, if we're not happy and experiencing pleasure, then we're not joyful. But joyful, joy is not something that's dependent upon circumstances. You can be joyful, should be joyful, uh, no matter uh, what you're facing. Right Now, I don't often quote Charles Spurgeon. Uh, great man of God, had a lot of good things to say, but he was a little too Calvinistic for my taste. But I had to give you this quote because it's somewhat ironic. He said, holy joy will beautify you. I think that's what Bruce Larson was talking about, about our holistic nature of our bodies and our soul. But uh, there really are a few things as beautiful as a countenance of joy. And the reason I had to show this photo is I thought it's 
it's, it's really fraught with irony. <laughs> because if you ask me, Brother Charles looks neither joyful nor beautiful in that picture. But anyway, that's what he said. That's what he said. Uh, joy is a beautiful quality. Joy is a beautiful quality. So there's three more uh, characteristics of uh, the model church, the early church. Unity, and as a unified body who come together around the death and resurrection of Christ, we then have no problem with generosity and benevolence and joy. Now, next week, I've only got two more characteristics, but I'm dedicating a week to each of them because they're both very important. Next week, I want to make sure you come back because we're going to talk about praise and worship and music and those types of uh, things. And uh, so be sure and come back next week uh, for that. But here's the takeaway as we think about unity, benevolence, and joy. Think about all that the Lord has done for us and smile. Smile. Don't, I mean, it's easy to smile when your team wins the football game or you take a great big bite of your favorite pie or maybe some funny show on television or someone says a joke, which, by the way, I appreciate a little more laughter when I tell my jokes. Um, but smile for the right reason, for, for who you are in Christ and what Christ uh, has done for us. It's good to be a Christian. It's good to be a Christian. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, just these reminders uh, as we see this picture of that first church there in Jerusalem. I pray that uh, we here at Plum Creek would uh, do our best as a church body and leadership to exemplify those qualities and uh, to just make a difference in this world until you come. And Lord, we do say, come, Lord Jesus. We, we look forward to that uh, grand reunion in the sky. And Lord, as things really come, become unraveled all around us, help us to Always look up and be watchful as we await that, that blessed hope. And Lord, we pray if there's anyone here uh, within the sound of my voice today that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. And in simple childlike faith, they would trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again to give them the free gift of eternal life. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, he's the lifter of our head. Amen. Let's all stand.